Well, my name is Julie, and I am the children's pastor here at Grace, and I have the great honor of teaching your children often. Um, but today, I'm going to be speaking to you, and um, I want to focus in on marriage with you today. So we're going to start in Ecclesiastes 4.12, and it says this. A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three is even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. My mom and dad uh, were a wonderful, godly example of marriage to me and my siblings. And um, my dad would always tell us any chance he got, and probably some of you, because they did attend this church, he would say, it's me, Lindy, and Jesus. And he would say it over and over again. It's me, Lindy, and Jesus. We're like, yeah, dad, we got it. It's you, Lindy, and Jesus. <laughs> um, but it was true, and it was important for us to hear at a young age, because they taught us that a godly marriage needs to be set on him. The foundation to a godly marriage is Christ. They let us know that the three cords in that rope were them and Jesus. That was kind of the triple threat to the enemy, um, the unbreakable triple threat to the enemy. That their union with Christ was what fortified their marriage and protected their family. So as we focus on marriage today, I do wanna say that the passages that I'm gonna bring to you are very rich. They are full of life-giving truth, and so we will not do enough with it here. I want you to look at it at home and really focus on it and ask God to illuminate to you what you need to see so that you can apply the truth to your life. It's really important that you know that. There's so much in God's word to teach us um, that's so important. I also want you to know that I pray for your marriages. I work with your kids, and so I care about your marriages because your marriages not only impact you as husband and wife, but they impact your kids and then the overall environment of your family. If you're single and you're here, don't check out because you might get married someday, or you could see what it looks like, the picture of Jesus and the church. And when I say the church, I mean all believers, right? Not just at Grace Assembly, but all believers throughout the world is called the church. So our marriages are supposed to be a reflection of Christ and the church. So you can at least pick up on that as a single person here today. I know you just wrapped up a series with Pastor Doug if you've been here about guarding your heart. And so today, I kinda want us to check our heart. And I want to forewarn you that I don't want to see any elbows to your spouse as we're talking about the roles of a husband or a wife. When I say check your heart, I mean your own heart. Um, it's very easy to point out what our spouse is doing wrong, but it is hard to do self-reflection. But I'm going to ask you to do that today. I'm going to ask you to do the hard work of self-reflection with God's word being the mirror to guide your actions. I think it's important to start at the beginning, so that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go to Genesis and see where it all began. We see in the creation story that God was creating things and he kept saying, it's good, it's good, I created this, it's good, I created light, it's good, I created animals, it's good, I created man, it's good. But there's a moment where God says, it's not good. So the first time in all creation as he's creating, he says, whoa, this is not good. And it was when he was watching Adam alone Adam was lonely, and he noticed that, and he said, whoa, got to do something about this. This isn't good. And so he created Eve, his helper. And then it was good again, and they had perfect union, and it was beautiful in the Garden of Eden until, probably a lot of you know this story, but maybe you don't. The enemy, right, Satan, comes to Eve and tempts her. He says to her, just 
have fruit of this tree, right? It looks good for eating, doesn't it? You'll be smart like God. Your eyes will be opened. Like, you should totally do this. And Eve is convinced. The Bible says she's convinced that a fruit is good for eating, and she does take it. She decides, in essence, I know better than God. I don't need to do what he says. I'm going to eat this fruit. And she does, and then she gives it to her husband. And that's where sin enters the world. A decision, a selfish decision to do our own thing instead of listening to what our creator said to do. Our creator who knows better than we know. So we're going to pick up in the scripture right after this happens. They, they eat the fruit and then God comes into the garden and he curses the serpent for doing that, um, for, for speaking lies to Eve. But then he also says to Adam and Eve, hey, there's going to be consequences. And here's what they are. Genesis 3, 16 and 17 says, he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain you will give birth. And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man he said, since you listened to your wife and ate of the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All of your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. Let's pray and ask God to illuminate the truth to our hearts today. God, it is with humility that I come before you and ask that you would speak through me the truth that your people need to hear. Would you please open our spiritual eyes and spiritual ears to receive from you today? We trust you. We believe that you are the way and what you say is best, that your word is truth. And so please help us to apply the truth to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start with a story of my daughter, Abigail. She is six years old, and um, we have a three-year-old, Isaiah, our son, and she gets it, right? Like, are you, have you ever done this as a parent where you're like teaching your kids something and then they like do it and you're like, yes! Like you see them doing it with a neighbor or something like saying please and thank you or whatever. Well, we're teaching them obviously about the Lord and about theology and how it all works. And so one day in the car, um, Isaiah likes to go fast and he's always telling me, mom, beat the car, beat that car. And I'm like, dude, I, I can't just like beat every car on the highway. Like, I'm sorry. I know you like to go fast, but there's rules, right? So um, sometimes when I am able to pass a car on the highway, he's like, thank you, mom, thank you. I'm like, okay, uh, great, woo. Uh, so the other day, a car like zooms past us, obviously speeding like way too fast. And he's like, mom, mom, you gotta beat that red car. And I was like, buddy, I cannot go that fast. That is called speeding, like I'm not gonna do that. And Abby chimes in from the back seat. Yeah, Isaiah, mom can't speed, that's called breaking the law. And we're like, okay, smarty pants. Uh, and Isaiah's like, oh man. And I, um, Abby continues, right? She's like, Isaiah, when sin entered the world, things like speeding entered the world. Like, you, right? <laughs> Breaking the law is, is sin, Isaiah. And I was like, oh yes, like she gets it. I'm like, good job, Abby, like that is awesome. I'm so pumped up in the front seat driving my car. And she's like, right. And so bad stuff entered, sin came in, things like lying, disobeying your parents, speeding, and raisins. <laughs> and I'm like, um, Ab, did you just say raisins came in at the fall of mankind? <laughs> and she's like, yeah, mom. Raisins are disgusting and gross, so they had to come in when sin came in. <laughs> like, 
okay, I see your reasoning there, but I'm not exactly sure that's when raisins appeared in our world. You'll have to talk to God about that one. But it was pretty cool to see that she is getting it, right? The reality is that sin entered our world. Everything went downhill when sin entered our world because of the choices that we make. So today, as I focus in on the, on the roles of a husband and a wife, I want you to, to think and uh, evaluate where you're at as a husband or a wife. I've been married for 10 years now, and I think it is safe to say that none of us have to go up to the local college and take a course entitled Marital Issues 101, How to Struggle in Your Marriage. Like, no, we don't need that. It just comes, right? And we see it right here in Genesis 3:16. The woman will desire to control her husband. Am I the only one that identifies with that verse, ladies? Like, come on. It's innate. God said it. It's right here. But then he also made clear, ladies, that the husband will be an authority over us in our family setting. Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3 are the, the texts that we're going to look at today. So let's start out with the women. What does God say to, to wives? In Ephesians 5, 21 through 24, it says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2 says, You wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Then, even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. They will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. So we're going to focus on the fact that those two passages tell us as wives to submit to our husbands. And I realize that for some, the word submission brings about confusion or frustration. And so let me clear up a few things right now. The command in Ephesians 5.22 and 1 Peter 3.1 does not require women to be subordinate to men in general. It's telling a wife that she is coming under the authority of her husband within the home for order within the home. We are to recognize our husband's position of authority given by God and then come under his leadership. It doesn't say we're inferior. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that we recognize the way that God has planned marriages. This model for a family is actually seen in a lot of different places. So if you think about sports, there's a head coach usually and coaches working under them. There's a pilot and a co-pilot, a CEO and a COO, and a captain of a ship and a first mate. So let's talk about the captain of a ship for a second here. Have you guys ever seen someone in a canoe trying to steer while the other person is trying to steer? Well, I have. At kids' camp a few years ago, there were two boys, and when I tell you they were favorites, you'll know what I mean. And they got into a canoe together, and all the counselors are standing back on the shore watching, oh my word, how is this going to go? And they get in there, they get out on the water, and they're literally both fighting for control to steer it, and they're getting nowhere. They're going in some weird, I mean, not even a circle, just weird pattern and we're all kind of chuckling at them like oh my goodness we knew this was going to happen <laughs> and it was it was comical but the reality is in our marriages it can end up that way the husband is supposed to be the ship's captain we as wives are supposed to be the first mate 
In reading about ships this week, I actually saw a question come across on a, in an article that said, can there be two captains in a ship? And the answer was no. <laughs> and so that's biblical, right? They are right about the ship, and God says that about our marriages. There cannot be two captains. God gave husbands the role of leadership in our marriages, and we are to be his helper. There has to be someone that makes the final decisions, and that's husbands. That's what God has given them the ability to do. The rules that God gave us is not to say that one gender is better than the other. It is to maintain order within our homes, like I said. And I want to look at 1 Peter 3, 7, because it says this, that we are co-heirs in God's gift of life. The NLT actually says that she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. It's a partnership. We're not doing this alone, and we're not struggling for the control. We're supposed to work together. And when wives submit lovingly and respect their husbands, it's so much easier for them to lead us. So much easier. Let's look at an example from the Bible in Sarah and Abraham. 1 Peter 3, 6 says this. Sarah obeyed her husband, Abraham, and called him her master. You are her daughters when you do what is right without fear of what your husbands might do. Notice that, ladies. That we are supposed to love, submit, and respect no matter what our husbands do or don't do. We are called by God to submit to their leadership. Here's when things go a little crazy. When it's like the captain and the first mate are fighting for control of the helm, things break apart. Relationships start to suffer when we are struggling for control over our husbands. They don't feel like they probably want to love us in the way that we need because they're fighting us for the control that they need. God had it worked out perfectly that when one person does their job and the other person does their job, we live in harmony. It's out of reverence for God to honor him that we should submit to our husbands. Because when we submit to our husbands, we are actually submitting to Christ. And so we are putting our trust, yes, in our husbands, but we are also putting our trust in God. So before we look at what husband's job is, let me just say, because again, I am no expert on marriage, but I have the word of God that tells me what I'm supposed to do. And I know that some of us women that are strong say, this submission stuff, not so easy, <laughs> right? Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> but once we take a look at what the husband's job is, what his role is, let me just say that I'm glad I'm the wife because it is quite weighty what men are supposed to do in their homes. The covering that they are supposed to be for their wives is no small task. Ephesians 5, 25 through 29. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of his word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. So the love of God for the church is sacrificial, 
and completely unselfish. The way a husband is to care for his wife should be sacrificial and completely unselfish. Jesus loved the church so much he was willing to take on sin, to take care of that for us so that we didn't have to. Well, the same is true for a husband. He's to look out for his wife unselfishly, taking on things so that she doesn't have to, to spare her. The head of the home position does require the husband to be his wife's covering in many ways, but the biggest is spiritually. The husband may have the ultimate say on things, ladies, but he also has the ultimate responsibility for things. He's going to answer to God for how he led his family. We are going to answer to God as wives for how we allow him to lead our families. Do we submit as we should? It's very important. So just as Jesus bore the weight of sin for believers so that they didn't have to, the burdens our husbands will carry are so that we don't have to. That's, that's a hard job. I'm glad I'm the wife. I don't have to bear some of those weighty burdens that God calls our husbands to. Then verse 28 and 29 talk about how a husband should love his wife as he loves his own body. We should make decisions to make sure our bodies are healthy and strong. A husband is to make decisions based on, will this bring health to my wife? Will this strengthen my wife and my family? It's a whole lot of thinking they have to do. <laughs> Again, glad I'm not the husband. That's a lot of analysis that I'm not very good at. 1 Peter 3.7 says it this way. In the same way you husbands must honor your wives, treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should, so your prayers will not be hindered. So here, Peter is talking to his Christian brothers about respecting and honoring their wives. This is new. At that time in history, that was not the norm. To look at a woman and view her as equal was not happening in society. And so it goes against what society is used to, and it's starting to teach them, no, no, God's way is that they are equal so though women are often weaker than men physically, and sometimes our place in society can be a weaker place, it only means that husbands have to be more intentional about respecting and honoring their wives. And this term of honor in the scripture actually is a word that is used to describe honoring our elders. So treating someone with reverence and respect. Eugene Peterson's uh, paraphrase says it this way. Be good husbands to your wives, honor them, delight in them. As women, they often lack some of your advantages. But in the new life of God's grace, you're equals. Treat your wives then as equals so that your prayers don't run aground. The implication there is that the failure to treat your wife the way that you should, the way that God has called you to, is that it will affect your prayer life. It will affect you spiritually. And I believe the same is true for women. When we don't respect our husbands as we are called to, there's spiritual implications there. Think about the way a husband and a wife treats them, each other. It's a good indication of spiritual maturity. Are we doing what God has called us to do? 
probably none of you would take a job without knowing the requirements, right? You want to know what you're supposed to do. Well, sometimes I think that we take this job of husband or wife in marriage and we're not exactly sure what we're supposed to be doing. But it's right here in the Word of God. The directions are here. We just have to apply them, however hard it may be, I know. So now I want to take a moment and talk about the attacks of the enemy. Because it started in the garden. In the garden where everything was perfect, Satan said, no way, this isn't going to work. i got to disrupt this unity thing going on between Adam and Eve because they're reflecting Christ perfectly right now. Like, that, that can't be. And so he started there with the lies and deception. And he's still deceiving us today. We are still struggling in our marriages. We saw it again in that verse, right? The, the wife wants to control the husband. So in a book called The New Testament Survey, written by Merrill Tenney, he points out that 1 Peter's chief goal is to teach Christians how to live out their redemption in a hostile world. And so I'd like to bring to you today that our world, our culture right now, is hostile towards God's view of marriage, towards his standards of marriage for the roles of a husband and a wife. We live in a hostile time for what God wants us to do. It is not easy to do these things. Trust me, I know I am a wife. It is not easy, but it is what God's calling us to do. So one way that Satan tries to tear down marriages and families is by getting into our thoughts. Have you ever noticed that your inner monologue about your spouse is getting more and more judgmental, right? If only she'd have dinner ready when I get home and the house clean. If only he'd help with the kids more. Things would be better if my husband listened to me more. Things would be better if my wife stopped trying to fix me all the time, <laughs> right? The list can go on and on and on. And this is just one area that the enemy comes after us, our thought life. And so I teach the kids downstairs, and I'll say it to you, that we have to capture our thoughts and then discern them. Are those thoughts our own? Are they of God or are they from the enemy? Now, the surefire way to know if they're from God is if they match the word of God. Then you know you're good to go. You can follow that thought if it's from the Lord. But if it's from the enemy, you should rebuke it right away. I love the bumper sticker I saw the other day that said, not today, Satan, right? <laughs> Abby quotes that all the time, actually. She's like, Mom, remember that bumper sticker we saw? Not today, Satan. I'm like, oh, boy. <laughs> She's going to go to school saying that, but hey, that's okay. That's all right. But it's true, when we decide, when we discern that a thought is from the enemy, don't follow it and rebuke it. Not today, Satan. Relationships end up suffering um, when we struggle from control, when communication breaks down, when selfishness comes in, and we want to do what works for us instead of what is better for our spouse, or when we misuse the role that God has given us, and we domineer our spouse. The Bible tells us that the enemy seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. His goal from the beginning, and still to this day, is to cause misunderstanding of what God wants for us, to cause disunity among believers, and certainly among husbands and wives. If he can convince a wife that her role of submission is outdated, or causes her to feel inferior and that she should fight for control in her home, then he's won. 
And if he can convince a husband that his role of leadership in the home should be a harsh dictatorship or not worth the hard work and effort it takes to lead a strong woman, then he's won. A Christ-centered marriage is what God wants for us and exactly what he is working against. Husbands and wives, we have to look at our own hearts. It's on you to check your own hearts, to deal with your own sin within marriage, not pointing out your spouses. Let's look at Ephesians 5, 31 through 33. It says this. A man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. The beauty and benefit of our unity with Jesus through his work on the cross is mirrored in the unity of marriage. When the wife is doing her role perfectly and the husband is doing his role perfectly, it's beautiful. It's easy to respect a man, a husband, who is making choices that benefit me, yes? When we know and can trust that he is making decisions that are godly, it is easy to come under his leadership. And when a wife is respecting, respecting and honoring and submitting to the husband, it's easy to love her and make good choices to better her. It's when we're not fulfilling our roles that things get messed up and really out of whack. So what are you supposed to do with all this truth that you've heard today from God's word? Well, you need to apply it to your life. Because if you come here and listen to me talk about truth and do nothing with it, it's kind of pointless. And so I have some challenges for you, both individually and as a couple. Individually, please pray and ask God to reveal to you how you are doing at fulfilling your role in marriage and the areas that you need to work on. Know what the word of God says about what your role is and how to fulfill it. And then spend time reading those scriptures and dwelling on them a bit, giving thought to them and asking the Holy Spirit to guide you in how to apply them. As a couple, here's what I'd like you to do. Talk with your spouse later today or at some point this week to assess if your marriage is a reflection of Christ and the church. Are you both living out your God-given roles? And how can you help each other in the partnership of marriage to do a better job fulfilling those roles? Surround yourself with couples who will point you to godly living. I've heard it been said that you should have three close couples in your life. One who is older and wiser, who has gone before you, that can impart wisdom to you. One that is um, at the same spot you're in in marriage, so you can have some laughs about the good, the bad, and the ugly of marriage, right, and to really relate. And then the last would be um, someone who's just starting out, a couple who is newly married so that you can share experiences and you can spur them on towards relationship that is stronger and healthier with each other and with God. And lastly... Live like Christ's work on the cross is enough, because it is. There are too many of us that walk around 
just thinking about the cross as some great story in the word of God instead of the power that gives life and victory in Jesus. There's no issue that you are facing in your marriage that God cannot heal and restore. The work that Jesus did on the cross is enough. The spiritual ramifications of that work on the cross are so deep and so far-reaching to restore all that was lost in the garden. And yet we don't live like that. We don't live like we already have victory in Jesus, but we should because we do. God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us, to restore what was lost. If that isn't life-transforming, I don't know what is. It is the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead that lives in us when we accept him as our savior. Guys, we have power in us for righteous living. Again, I'm not saying it is easy to fulfill the role of a wife or a husband, but we have to access the power given by God to accomplish that. My prayer for you today is that you and your spouse would be able to identify any lies of the enemy within your marriage and then stand as a united front against them. Because as my dad said, it's you, your spouse, and Jesus. And you're going to need Jesus to make sure that your marriage is healthy and thriving, that you're working together in a mutual, beautiful partnership like Christ does with the church to care for the church, to build the church up in a kind and loving leadership way. We're going to end today with taking communion together. So we've talked about the beauty of Jesus dying for us and something that we do here in church to remember that is take communion. So in taking communion, we are recognizing that Jesus sacrificed his life for us, his body was broken, his blood was spilt, and that's a big deal. So at Grace, we do have an open communion table, meaning if you're not a member here, you're certainly welcome to take communion. However, you should only take communion if you are a believer in Jesus Christ as Lord. Let me read to you what 1 Corinthians 11 says. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourselves before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment on yourself. So this is a serious moment where we recognize what Jesus did for us, the sacrifice that was made for payment of sin so that we don't have to make that payment for sin. And so please, for the next few minutes, pray, talk to God, examine your heart, ask him to show you if there's anything in you that needs to be forgiven or if someone comes to mind that you need to ask forgiveness from, make sure you follow through with that. Let's pray and examine our hearts. And then once everyone has been served, I'll lead us in taking the elements.